turn to the book of Philippians one more time as we round out our study here in Philippians tonight. Uh, chapter 4, verses 19 through 23, although we're going to kind of do a little overview, maybe hit the high points along the way here. God's sufficiency, uh, closing remarks is what I've titled the message here. So let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for the sunshine today and uh, for the springtime. Uh, thank you that we could uh, come together in Jesus' name and study the word together. Thank you for the ongoing ministries, for all the workers in our youth ministries as well. I want a youth group. Pray that they'd go well tonight and it'd be just a, a good time of uh, sharing in the word, sharing in the things of God together this evening. So we commit our, our time to you now and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we are starting with the uh, outline here, and uh, you will note we have worked our way through the entire book, and uh, there's a reason I underline sufficiency here, uh, rejoicing in Christ, our sufficiency, uh, greetings and blessings. That kind of carries out, verse 19 is really what we're looking at tonight through verse 23. Verse 19 is emphasizing our sufficiency in Christ, continuing on with that theme there yet. And then uh, we end up with the greetings and blessings. Just a few other things as far as background for our study tonight. Paul's letter to the Philippians has had as its central theme joy, but it is grounded in the big idea of an eternal perspective. Every chapter. The letter has much to do with perspective and the fact that the Christian life is to be lived out in reference to a, a proper perspective. And it is true how you think about life and how you live your life uh, go together. And then, uh, just to hit the high points here, as far as a, the theme of a joyful perspective, chapter 1, a single-minded, gospel-centered, eternal perspective, for to me to live is Christ. And then, of course, to die is gain. If, if the first part is true, for to me to live is Christ, the last part is true, too, to die is gain. But that's uh, in the first chapter. Second chapter, a humble, servant-minded perspective, uh, the mind of Christ, Christ the ultimate example here. And then chapter 3, a salvation, sanctification-minded perspective to know Christ, uh, to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. And then to round out the book, uh, chapter 4, a stable-minded perspective, application of what Paul taught and modeled. So uh, we uh, note all the way through there, these are key to a joyful uh, perspective. And then uh, thematically, verses 10 through 20 go together and are dealing with themes related to the believer's sufficiency in Christ. That's a, the, the main emphasis in chapter 4. Contentment for Paul is rooted in relationship with Christ, and he gives strength to cope with whatever our external circumstances may be. Uh, however, Paul does not want this emphasis on contentment to be misconstrued as not being appreciative, that is, for the gift that the uh, Philippians had sent to him. And so uh, note just a few principles here in this chapter. Giving is a matter of fellowship, a partnership in the gospel in this case. Giving is a matter of stewardship that has eternal ramifications. They will be rewarded for it. And giving is a matter of worship, as we left off at verse 18 there. The language of verse 18 is one of worship. Worshiping giving is the context. Furthermore, the context for these giving believers was one of poverty which makes it all the more precious and delightful to the Lord. It's like a sweet aroma, as he says. Well, this sets up the context for where we go now in verses 19 and 20. All right, uh, somebody want to read for us verse 19? <clears throat> yeah, Levita? 
Okay. Uh, what's the operative word here in this verse? <clears throat> There's several. Well, yeah. I, I'm looking at that word need, right? My God shall supply all your need. I'm, I'm thinking about that in particular here. And uh, <clears throat> really what we have here is uh, my God. Note no, we jumped out of the next verse. We're not there yet, but he will say now to our God. But here in verse 19, he's emphasizing my God. Well, what has the emphasis been in the previous part of the chapter here? Paul's saying, well, I've learned in whatever state I am in this to be content, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It, this is kind of the overflow of his personal testimony here. My God. Your God, yes. Our God, yes. But emphasis on his personal testimony, I think. Uh, my God, the one I've been talking about that meets all my needs, he shall supply uh, your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Uh, note he uh, shall supply. It doesn't say uh, there's, a good, there's a good chance he might come through. <laughs> he shall, right? He shall supply uh, your need. Uh, he shall supply all your need according to his riches. So uh, note there is a context here. And uh, note what I say here. The context is the people that are sacrificially giving for the cause of the gospel. These were poor people at, at Philippi. For the cause of, the, of God's gospel servant. It is a context of giving that is worshipful and a delightful fragrance to God. We just saw that in verse 18. This is the context in which verse 19 is couched. We can't see it in English, but in the Greek, there's a play on words in verse 18 and 19. The Greek word translated shall supply in verse 19 is the same word translated full in verse 18. The idea then is, I am full, having received from you, and my God shall fill all your needs. So that seems to be the, the, the play on, on words here. That's the context. Let me ask you this. Uh, okay, we're looking at this. Here. Hey, praise, this is a wonderful verse, right? My God shall supply all your need according to his riches. What about verse 12? Remember there back in verse 12 where Paul says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Note there, you know, we, we like those positive ones, but... What about being abased? What about being uh, hungry? What about suffering need? How does that square with verse 19, do you suppose, where my God shall supply all your need according to his riches? Spiritually, not physically? Uh, the context really would seem to be kind of emphasizing physically in the context. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in, in that. That's true. And uh, I guess who's to decide what our ultimate needs are? <laughs> yeah, yeah. comes right down to it. And, and I'll, I'll bring this out further as we go along. But our real need is to bring glory to God. And, uh, you know, some people as believers are going through incredible things tonight. We might say, well, boy, their needs aren't being met. According to who? Uh, we belong to God. He's in charge. Uh, maybe the need is, uh, you know, one day it became the, you know, Paul had to go to the guillotine. 
his needs were a little different on that day than the day before. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, God's in charge is what I'm saying. And so we need to think through that lens. But uh, we read different places, like in Matthew chapter 6, 33, where Christ says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Uh, put God first, and, and he'll take care of you according to what your needs are, according to his purpose, according to his plan, his will for your life. And then again, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound toward you. He's writing to very needy believers here again who gave really out of there what they didn't have almost, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. So he's saying God, God is able to, to make, make it such that you are able to be givers, uh, to be grace givers. And so that's the emphasis there. Uh, just a few things as far as giving here, as we think about th- that theme here. Uh, this, to me, is probably the number one verse in the New Testament on giving. So say, what, what, Is there a verse that really narrows down uh, grace giving, which is why I call grace giving versus law giving, legalistic giving? Uh, this would be the verse, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Not grudgingly or of necessity. You don't want to do it, you know, begrudgingly, like, I really don't want to give it, but okay, you talk me into it, Pastor. (laughs) No, not grudgingly or of necessity. It's like, you have to give 12%. Inflation, you understand. (laughs) Uh, No, Uh, you know, there was necessity in the Old Testament. They were under law. There was some necessity there. You didn't have a choice. And people, when they start, and, and tithing's a good principle. I, I think the first fruits of the Lord is a wizard principle coming out of Proverbs. But it's not a law under grace giving. In fact, I think grace giving outstrips law giving. And, and it's not of necessity. You don't want to give it? Okay, fine. Really what God's looking for is a cheerful giver. You want to give in a way that God says, well done? That, I'm, I'm pleased with that. It's a sweet fragrance coming up before him. He wants a cheerful giver. Uh, doesn't have, you don't want to do it? Okay. God loves a cheerful giver. Here in 1 Corinthians 16, too, we see uh, as they were raising some funds for missionary work, if you will. On the first day of the week, let each of you uh, lay a, something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So if you were to put this together, I think you end up with these types of principles here. Giving then is seen to be purposeful, as you purpose in your heart, regular, each week, he says, as, as you're prospering. Uh, or if you get paid once a month like I do, you know, <laughs> according to as you're prospering, as you're getting paid, according to how God prospers us. So I, I think those are the principles related to grace giving that, that we see in the New Testament here. All right, uh, my God shall supply all your need, he says. Not your greed, that's what your point is, but your need, uh, all your need according to his riches. And notice it's, uh, it's in accordance uh, to his riches. Uh, that's an important di- distinction. Not out of, but according to uh, his riches in glory, which is the idea of a surplus. Uh, over abundantly. It's according to his plan. It's uh, your needs are according to his plan, according to his purpose. 
Uh, note uh, here in, on the slide here, we must remember that we are just pilgrims and strangers passing through. We're here on a mission, not here to stay. We're not here for ourselves, but to advance the program of God. Everything, including our needs, must be seen through this lens. With this in mind, what really is our need? I would submit to you that Paul would answer that with Philippians 1.20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So, you know, sometimes God's will involves death as well as life. But whatever is involved in the purpose of God in magnifying Christ in our body, he'll meet that need according to his purpose uh, for his glory. Uh, I think that's the, the premise here. Uh, so we need to see, verse 19, through the lens of an eternal perspective that encompasses the entire book here, the entire book of Philippians. And we need to see it through the lens of an eternal perspective, not just merely a temporal perspective. My God shall supply all your need, he says, according to his riches in glory by Christ. Uh, his riches in glory. How, how vast are those riches? Yeah? Right. How about glory? How about uh, riches in glory? <laughs> uh, limitless. Right? Uh, in, in a, you know, can't be exhausted. So, yeah, that's the idea here. Uh, according to his riches. Uh, he'll meet your need. It's not like God saying, well, I wonder how we're going to come up with that one. No, uh, no problem for God. His abundant provision is uh, befitting his glorious riches. Uh, I love this story from the Old Testament. Uh, here in Numbers 11, you know, the people are wanting meat. They're tired of manna, Right? I mean, manna was okay for a while, but now we want some meat. We're, they're remembering, you know, the leeks and the onions and the meat that we had back in Egypt and all that stuff. And Moses says, the people whom I am among are 600,000 men, <clears throat> which if you add in women and children, how many does that give you? <laughs> That's the right answer. Maybe 3 million. I mean, we don't know. It's always a guess, but they're thinking maybe 3 million people total. It's a lot of people to feed. Uh, the people whom I am among are 600,000 men on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall the flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide en enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you will see whether what I say will happen to you or not. <laughs> but I love that line. Has the Lord's arm been shortened? I mean, has his ability to provide been cut off? And say, well, he can't quite reach it. He can't cut, quite do it. He can't quite deliver. No, the Lord's arm is not, has not become short. I love this true story from Dallas Seminary. Dallas Seminary was founded in 1924. At one point, uh, they were in critical danger of going under financially. Creditors were going to foreclose at noon on the appointed day unless the school came up with $10,000. That morning, Lewis Berry Chafer, who was the founder and, and first president of the seminary, first president of Dallas Seminary, called for a, a prayer meeting in his office. Dr. Harry Ironside, the famed Bible expositor, was there. He prayed, Lord, we know that the cattle on a thousand hills are yours. Please sell some of them. As they prayed, a Texas rancher came to the business office and said, I just sold two carloads of cattle and I feel God is compelling me to give the money to the seminary. 
The secretary immediately took the check for $10,000 to Dr. Schaefer. He looked at the check, turned to Harry Ironside and said, Harry, God sold the cattle. <laughs> Isn't that not cool? I love that story. That's amazing. You know, just a total God thing. Petition immediately turned to Thanksgiving and doxology. You know, it's so neat to have testimonies like that because, uh, you know, we know God provides our needs, but to see it in such dramatic fashion like this, how God provided according to his riches and glory, I mean, uh, it was just such a God thing. I just think that's such a neat testimony. God's our provider, but he does use human agents in the process. But it's ultimately God who's behind it. Uh, Paul is thanking God for his provision through these uh, Philippians here in this context. Yet he knew it was God who's, who's meeting his need and who would meet their need as well. Uh, you know, we have all kinds of verses, but uh, here's a couple of well-known verses in Matthew six eleven. Give us this day our daily bread. We're looking to God to provide for our daily needs. James 1, 17, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God's our provider. Every good thing comes from him. Absolutely everything, including the next breath that you're about to take, right? Absolutely. Uh, God is sufficient. Uh, he, his riches are sufficient. He, he can care for us. It's not like we have to wonder, oh my goodness, how, how am I going to take care of myself? God the Father takes care of us. doesn't mean uh, that there's not human responsibility involved. But he does provide according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. What we have here is a comprehensive truth that leads to doxology. Uh, notice uh, the source here is said to be by Christ Jesus. Uh, he's, the, he's the mediator. He's the, he's the source through which uh, God channels these things. Without Jesus Christ, we would have no father. We would not have a relationship with God. We couldn't claim uh, God's care like we can as his children. And, of course, he's a very merciful and gracious God, right? Who's he send the, the rain on? The just and the unjust. You know, he's very gracious to these ungrateful people, right? But we're his children. I mean, we're in a special category of certainly being God's children, casting all your care upon. He cares for you. Uh, like I say, he's merciful to all. But uh, we are his children. And uh, Paul's thinking through that lens here. All right. Um, before we get to the doxology and closing remarks, any other thoughts here? Great verse. God shall supply all your need. I believe he'll, according to his plan, his purpose, his will, his program, he's going to do that. Not your wants, but your needs. And what is your need? Well, my need is to glorify God. <laughs> if I'm thinking biblically. That, that's what my need is, really. Uh, God will give me what I need to bring glory to him, whether by life or by death, that he, he can magnify himself uh, in and through my body. All right, well, let's have uh, someone read verse 20. Yeah, Dale? Okay. Uh, to our God, he says. Uh, family realities here. Uh, we think about uh, our God and Father. Uh, when we think about uh, our relationship with God, we think about Jesus being our Savior, He is our Savior. And often we talk about God as our Father. God the Father as our Father, right? 
And so we, we think in those terms. Of course, there's overlap, the Trinity, you know, there's equality in the Trinity, but different roles. But to our God and Father, emphasis on Father here. When you think about God being your Father, what do you think about? What kind of a figure is the Father figure? Yeah, okay, that's true, he's in charge. Uh, what else? Yeah. Well, yeah, we, we are responsible. We are accountable. Yep, John? Yep, all of those things are involved there. So benevolent care, right? He's t- providing for us. He's caring for us, and yet he's quick to discipline us as we need it to, you know, all of those things. Yeah, all these things enter in as far as, as God's sovereign care. I really think, as you think about Father, you think about a caring relationship, right? Uh, he's, he's providing. He's taking care. He's watching over. All of these things enter in here. And so he says, now to our God and Father, and Father, of course, assumes children. We are his children. Uh, be glory forever and ever. Amen. What kind of language is this? Be glory forever and ever. Amen. What's that? Yeah, uh, the language of worship, right? The language of doxology. In in fact, the the word daka in in Greek means glory, glory. And so when it says to him be glory forever and ever, it's ascribing value, praise, and honor uh, to him. Uh, And uh, this is going to be done in reference to God forever. He is worthy of our praise, ascribing glory and praise and honor and worship to him uh, for all eternity. Again, uh, this turns into doxology here. Uh, The comprehensive truth of God's provision reminds him that he's our father. And that turns into doxology, to to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, true believers are to be true worshipers. I mean, this is one reason God created us, is he's looking for true worshipers. And we are going to be worshiping him and ascribing glory to him forever and ever. That's what we're going to be doing. People say, you're going to get, you're going to, I don't think we're ever going to get bored in heaven. Um, certainly. Have we discovered everything there is to discover here on, on planet Earth? There's more places to discover and to uh, new things to learn, new places to see. Even here, this is just such a puny little planet. Imagine eternity and what there's out there. In his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore, it says. But through it all, we're going to be giving glory to God. Well, this really ends the letter proper, and we will now conclude the letter with the greetings and the benediction. But any other thoughts as we come to the end of the letter proper? Okay, all right. Let's have somebody read verses 21 and 22. They go together. Somebody want to read that, 21 and 22? Yeah, Jeff? Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those who are of Caesar's household. Okay, very good. A lot of greeting going on here. Uh, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, he says. Uh, Paul's pattern is to kind of personally pen the last letters 
or the last lines of his letters, and we think he probably maybe picked up the pen here. Uh, he, he mentions this in some of his other letters, that his, his uh, signature is to sign off by writing the last lines, which evidently were, were large letters because he didn't have good eyesight. But anyway, uh, that aside, uh, notice what he says here, uh, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Uh, greetings are very important in Paul's letters. And, and why do you suppose that is? Why are greetings so important? We can just cut out the greeting time on Sunday morning. I mean, it's just a little time, kind of filler space while I get to the pulpit and get a drink of water. <laughs> why, why is greeting important? Yeah, John? Yeah, and, and uh, it says something, right? When you greet someone, it says something, uh, at least it should. Like, you're important. I'm acknowledging you. Uh, you're special. Uh, notice here, uh, very personal and every saint is to be greeted. Everyone. Everyone matters. Uh, it's in effect saying, I, I, I care about every one of those people. Uh, greet every one of them. Don't leave anybody out. They all matter. Uh, and, and we should have that attitude towards the saints. It's not like, well, you know, some of you matter, some of you don't. No, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. This is a bond of, of fellowship here. And uh, by the way, uh, how many of the believers are saints? All of them. All believers are saints. Uh, you have the ain'ts and you have the saints. If you're a believer, you're a saint. Uh, and uh, uh, what does the word saint mean? You remember? Set apart ones. That's right. It's that idea. And so, uh, note my overhead here. The word saint means set apart one, holy one, or sanctified one. It refers to those who are in Christ Jesus on the basis of faith. Those who believe in Christ are set apart. I mean, immediately when you became a believer, you were set apart in Christ. Uh, they now belong to Jesus. They are positionally perfect. And practically, they are in process of becoming more and more like Jesus. So we are set apart positionally, and we are being set apart in practice more and more. Hebrews 10 brings them both together. Hebrews 10, 14. By one offering, he has perfected forever. I love this. This is one of my favorite verses, by the way. Uh, you can't be any better than perfected. And how long are you perfected for? Till you blow it. No, 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 no. Uh, forever. You're perfected forever. Uh, you, you know, you just can't beat that statement. By one offering, the cross, Jesus has done it. We didn't perfect ourselves, by the way. We didn't make ourselves saints. He has perfected us forever by his one offering. Uh, that's why we love him, right? That's why we love Jesus, what he's done for us. He has perfected us forever by his cross work. But then, if this is true, he's also at work in our life practically, who are being sanctified. We are being set apart in our practice. Positionally, we're perfected forever. In our practice, we are being sanctified. And both are true. If this is true, then this is also true. Only here in the New Testament does hagios, saint, occur in the singular, 57 times in the plural. And even here it is prefaced by every, a strong reminder that Christianity is essentially a corporate affair. Uh, you know, we're, we're in this together. That's the emphasis of saints in the New Testament. Uh, it's not a one-man show. It's not a, you know, we're not on our own here. 
So greet every saint in Christ Jesus. This is the sphere we're in. We're, we're in union with Jesus Christ now. Uh, we're in Christ. You're either in or out of Christ. There's no in between. You know, <laughs> you're either in or out. You're, you're one or the other. Either you have a relationship with Jesus Christ or you don't. You're either in Christ or you're out. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And then he says, the brethren who are with me greet you. All are equally brothers, by the way. He didn't say, I, your esteemed leader, and these other kind of, you know, guys are a little underneath me. And No, no. Uh, the brethren. We're all brothers. The brethren who are with me greet you. Perhaps Timothy, Epaphroditus. Um, yes, they have different roles. Uh, but uh, spiritual equals, brethren. The brethren who are with me greet you. And then he says, uh, all the saints greet you. Those who are right here ministering to me and with me, they greet you. But then all the saints greet you. Again, reflecting that, that spiritual bond. By the way, how did the book begin? If you want to turn back to chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So it starts out greeting the saints. And now he ends up with all the saints greet you. So he begins with saints and he ends with this emphasis on saints and greeting the saints. Emphasis on greeting them at the beginning and here at the end. And then he says, all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Wow, that's interesting. Who's Paul having contact with at this point? Yes, he is under house arrest, and he would have had contact with those in Caesar's household. And uh, probably talking about converts that he has probably won to the Lord. Uh, remember back in chapter 1, what he said there in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, he says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Well, in what sense? Where? I mean, you're under house arrest. He says, so it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Evidently, the furtherance of the gospel is, was, and through Paul was especially in relationship to the palace guard and those in Caesar's household at this point. And so this is evidently what he has in mind. Now, you have to understand how amazing this is. Um, <clears throat> as I have up here... One can almost hear a gasp as this statement is read. I mean, Nero was the Caesar in charge at this time. The title Caesar was like that of president and prime minister. He was such a wicked man that he greatly persecuted the Christians. He often burned them as human torches in his garden. Amazing but true that in this very context, under the very nose of Nero, as it were, the gospel was making an impact. So much so that Paul sends greetings to the saints in Philippi, especially from those who are of Caesar's household. That's the last place you expect greetings to come from if you're the saints at Philippi. And, uh, you know, I like this. I like this first because, you know, I think God is always doing an inside job. You know, there's probably somebody getting saved in the Biden administration right now. Probably right in the, the confines of the White House, inside the White House gates. Could God do such a thing? I mean, could anybody get saved there? <laughs> God likes to do those kind of things. 
right under Nero's nose. He's burning those Christians at night in his garden. And somebody's in the palace of his household's getting saved. It's amazing how God does that. Always is a remnant, not many, but somebody. God's at work and, and they're rubbing shoulders with Christians somewhere. Somehow the word's getting out, it's leaking out, and the devil does everything he can to shut it down with these wicked leaders. And yet it happens. God's doing an inside job behind the scenes in ways that befuddle the devil, befuddle the, the servants of Satan. All right. You know what that'll do for you? That'll give you some joy. Exciting to see what God's doing. That's what, that's what uh, the theme of this whole book is about. Okay. Anyone else? Any other thoughts here? Yeah, Kurt? Well, amen. And that is a great reminder. Uh, starting with the Godhead, I and mean, we have those kind of family terms, father and son. They're relational terms. Uh, you know, and then we have, like you say, the, the house, the household, the, the home. And then and we have the church family, which is really kind of an extension in a broader sense. But it's, it's family as well. Uh, and those terms are there, like you say. That's good. All right. Anyone else? Okay, let's finish out here. Somebody want to read verse 23 for us, the benediction. Somebody want to give the benediction? Yeah, John. Okay, again, grace is a big deal for us as Christians. Uh, you know the difference between us and unbelievers? You know what it is? It's grace. We are the products of grace. We are trophies of grace. We're saved by grace. We're strengthened by grace. We're preserved by grace. It's all grace. In fact, uh, Paul, at the beginning of the letter, I take you back there again, after he uh, is uh, greeting the saints in verse 1, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First thing he says <clears throat> after the greeting is grace. Grace to you. How's the end of the letter? Well, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So he really begins and ends with grace. And uh, what we have here is really a benediction. As he is, he is uh, kind of putting forth a prayer wish, a desire that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with them all. By the way, saints and grace go together, as I say. Uh, we are what we are by grace. In fact, the whole of Christianity can be reduced down to the word grace. It's all about grace. We're saved by grace. We are sustained by grace. We're empowered by grace. The Christian life is really an expression of the grace of God. Grace refers to God's un unmerited favor in relationship to salvation, in relationship to service. Uh, it's, you know, Paul would say, I am what I am by the grace of God. 
You know, it's, all glory goes to God for his grace and what he has done in terms of his unmerited favor in our lives, what he continues to do. Uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He mentions the full, what we call the full formal name of Jesus here. Lord means God-master. Uh, the grace of our Lord, God-master. Jesus means Savior. Call his name Jesus. Shall save his people from their sins. Christ refers to the special one, the, the chosen one. Literally, Christ is anointed one. You know, they anointed special people with special callings in the Old Testament with oil. Uh, he's our Lord Jesus Christ, our God-master, our Savior, the special chosen one. The grace of this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, be with you all. Amen. So uh, here we are at the end of the book, ending up with this grace benediction. And as we think about the book as a whole, uh, we want to think about what Paul has emphasized here in this letter. And, and if I had to, to, to illustrate it, I, I would illustrate it this way. If you put a, a book right in front of your face, I mean, right, you can't see it, right? You have to pull it back a little bit to be able to appreciate it and read it and see what the message is. And sometimes life is like that. When we have circumstances hitting us flat in the face, straight in the face, we don't always see real clearly. We almost got to back up a little bit to get the right perspective, an eternal perspective. And that's a Philippians perspective. That's what we want. And so my final slide here, we need to focus on the very reason why we are here. We need to think in terms of the gospel in light of an eternal perspective. We need to realize it's all about serving others and not self. We need to recognize that life is all about knowing Christ and making him known. We need to, again, focus on these stabling realities. This is the message of Philippians. Ever rejoicing the Lord because our name is written in the book of life. Uh, this is the big thing. Uh, enjoying the peace of God, which comes through prayer. Uh, knowing contentment in whatever state we are in because of Christ's strength. And underneath it all is the grace of God. Uh, that's a good way to summarize what we have seen in, in the book. How do you handle life properly? Well, you handle it with an eternal perspective. That's how you handle it. And when you do so, I think this is where joy comes in. As he says in 4.4, the key verse, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Live in light of an eternal perspective and, this, and, and with your focus on God, and this is what brings joy to you. Well... Great way to end. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. All right. Any other concluding thoughts here as we wrap up the book of Philippians here tonight? Okay. Well, very good. We must have exhausted it. No, just kidding. <laughs>